the Brussels Report podcast. Welcome to a new episode of the uh, Brussels Report podcast. Uh, my name is uh, Peter Gleppe, and I'm uh, very happy to have as my guest uh, today uh, Dutch uh, MEP Michiel, uh, Michiel Hogeveen. Uh, Michiel, very welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me and having me here. Sure. So a sw- small introduction. Uh, Michiel is, uh, is an MEP, I think, for, uh, for two years now. Um, before that, he was working as an assistant um, to, to, uh, uh, to an MEP um, from the same party, of course. Um, and before that, he has uh, history in the, in the financial sector in the Netherlands, uh, worked with a big four company with, uh, uh, with a, uh, an, um, a stock uh, storage bank, if I can translate that. Well, a custodian. <laughs> a custodian, of custodian course. Yeah, yeah. Well, that actually makes more sense. Uh, well, so, so, so very welcome, uh, Michiel. Um, today, uh, we will discuss, first of all, um, the conference on the future of Europe. So our listeners are, are quite... Uh, uh, quite familiar with this um, this exercise, uh, which was uh, started in 2021. I mean, already before the COVID crisis, there were plans for it. It was delayed. Um, and uh, yeah, you have um, a very complex structure there where uh, an executive board uh, controlling uh, much of the much of the action, much of the fun and uh, experts uh, giving their opinions and and working groups that are supposed to prepare plenaries, yeah. coming up with all kinds of conclusions that are, uh, I would say, conspicuously uh, similar to what uh, people uh, supporting a more federal Europe want, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the Conference on the Future of Europe was initially thought of by uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, when he was having problems in his own country with the yellow vest some time ago. Uh, and he thought of a way to... Uh, listen to the people. He wanted to to uh, have uh, the opinions of the yellow vests heard in his policy making. So what he thought of was the, um, well this this and and this is this is what what um, uh, new political parties see as a as an alternative to the uh, and I put it between brackets populist referendum. They want to initiate citizen panels. So in order to to have citizens. Uh, involved in in policy making in politics, they invite them ran- randomly selected citizens. They they have these these uh, panels, and and then um, the conclusions of these panels are seen as recommendations to the policy making. So Macron started doing this. He called it the le grand debat, and um, uh, he initially thought when the European elections um, uh, from 2019 were finished and they had to form a new uh, European Commission. Um, he said, well, it's, it's a, a splendid idea to also do this on the European stage. And this idea was um, then involved in, in, well, the wheeling and dealing and the negotiating on the new commission. Um, and and uh, from what I have heard, it was the deal that the Germans would get uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen as uh, commission uh, chair and the, or commission president. And then uh, Macron uh, would have his... Uh, his uh, conference on uh, the future of Europe. And that's exactly um, what we have seen the last couple of years. Mm. Um, uh, Yeah, that's basically the background story. And and what's your opinion on sort of the process? Because uh, I've, of course, followed the ECR campaign here, uh, which was, I would say, rather critical. 
um, I mean, would you, uh, like, assuming you would uh, do an exercise like that, uh, I mean, do you think it happened in a, in a proper manner? Well, first of all, uh, we believe that, uh, or at least my, my party believes that we, we believe in direct democracy. We believe that we should uh, engage the citizens more in, in politics, in policymaking, um, especially when, when people only go to, to the um, once in four years, they have an election and then they decide on who is to govern their country. But when uh, fundamental questions are being asked, you should also come back to the uh, to the citizens or, or to the people. Uh, you can do that either via a referendum, but we also believe that uh, a citizen panel can be an effective tool to um, to make recommendations on policy making. Um, at the same time, we saw that this this uh, initiative from Emmanuel Macron was already set up to be a one-way street in terms of um, in, in, in terms of European policymaking, and that one-way street is a one-way street to, to more towards more European integration. Mm. Uh, some even say uh, towards a, uh, a federal. European Union, and that is the problem that we had from the from the very beginning. We already saw that the the, the structure uh, of the conference itself was already fundamentally flawed uh, because it was clearly steering towards a certain outcome. So in that respect, we 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 try to um, engage. We tried to um, uh, to be active in the conference. Um, but it's unfortunate to to see that that now we are coming towards the end of the conference. That actually, um, well, our initial fears of of being it a, a clearly biased conference, uh, well, it has been confirmed. Yes, uh, and uh, maybe one more thing. I also I, I wrote a briefing on this at some point uh, some time ago, and then mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was undeniable how um, unbalanced the experts was. I mean, if I mm -hmm. were to let's say, uh, organize this conference, I would at least, uh, to, I would have m made sure to at least have a few token Eurosceptics. Yeah. Um, but but just to, to, to give it some kind of, um, you know, an air of neutrality, but, but I mean, not even that, they really couldn't help, help themselves and, and they, they stuffed the, all the expert panels full of uh, people uh, that they agree with yeah uh, I mean or or perhaps it has improved what was your what's your idea on this well I think that the the um, it, it's it, they, they made up this this Byzantine meeting circus truly uh, um, uh, which 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 truly represents the Brussels bubble uh, <laughs> and they, they set this up and it's 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 an unbelievably complicated uh, structure of meetings and people and citizens and representatives and, and just to explain it very briefly what, what 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 the structure of this conference was when the citizens were involved so first we had the national citizens panels these were citizens um, selected by the uh, by the national governments and these were citizens who mostly are uh, people from civil society organization or civil society uh, NGOs um, and we have seen that these NGOs have outspoken pro-EU integration views so for example mm. one of the NGOs involved in the conference was Pulse of Europe which is uh, a federalist organization that waves EU flags on Sunday. Um, probably, probably EU funded. Exactly. Uh, so we have seen, so this is just one example, but we've seen many, many organizations, uh, Business Europe, for example, was there as well. Um, 
so these are already organizations that have um, an, an, an underlying um, organizational structure, but also knowledge about the EU and EU integration. And they and these organizations actually benefit from from uh, more EU integration. Um, but also, for example, in the Netherlands, the, the, the citizens from the national citizens panels were uh, students who had to do uh, who had to apply and they had to do a concours. So so it was actually a quite high select uh, selection procedure. Um, so that's the national okay. citizen panels. Okay. Then we have the European citizen panels. And this is basically what they said. That was the. The, the most important panel because these were randomly selected citizens. So they basically called 800 random European citizens. Uh, and it was done by um, uh, an independent uh, organization called Kantar. They called these citizens and, uh, well, they were asked to join this, this conference. Uh, so in principle, this is a randomly selected citizen. These are randomly selected citizens. However, what we have seen in the numbers is that more than half of the people were that were called, at least in the Netherlands, were not willing to participate. So they kept calling until they had people who were willing to participate. And mm. obviously, these were mostly people who also already have an interest in the EU, in, in EU integration, in EU policymaking. So when speaking to, to one of these citizens, um, uh, he was a student and he said, well, this is great on my resume. Uh, this, this is, uh, I, I feel like a politician. And, and, and so, so that's, 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 so those are the European citizens panels. So the fact is, fact of the matter is, are these really randomly selected citizens? Yes. But are they truly a representative, a representation of the, the peoples of Europe? No. Then the final, um, uh, platform was to, in, engage and involve the citizens was the, the multilingual digital platform. And all citizens were, were, were able to express their ideas on the, on the website. And uh, they, they promised they would, they would take these ideas into account. But if you take a look at, for example, migration, the most liked idea on the multilingual digital platform was, uh, please stop migration from third world countries. Well, this has definitely not been implemented in 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 the uh, final report. Okay, so interesting. Yeah. And and these um, and and then again, the the multilingual digital platform. The people were invited to express their ideas, but when when we look at how many people have actually heard of the conference and know what the conference is, it's it's not even above three percent. So uh, so yeah, the, the the question is: is this, was this truly a representative exercise? And, uh, well, now we are coming towards the end and we can clearly say no. Mm. And especially I thought your, your example of this uh, most liked ID, I mean, that's quite telling, right? Because yeah. that's clearly not what uh, they were wanting to hear. Perhaps what they were expecting to hear, of course, if you have a little bit of a, um, you know, a, a sense for news, that does not surprise uh, anyone, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, it's quite telling. Anyway, let's maybe move to um, to what I would say is more important, much more important subject is is um, is the, the European Central Bank, uh, how it's stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, I probably don't have to recall for our listeners that we have a little inflation problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, monstrous levels of uh, of inflation. I think the the producer price in Germany last month was like the highest yeah. increase in uh, in 70 years. I mean, we were breaking all records. 
of course, there's a big component of, um, of energy. And of course, it's not all because of the money printing of the ECB. I always say that if you, uh, if you do experiments with your energy policy, at some point, things are going to go wrong. Yep. And if you then have this massive war that we're having now, uh, you know, the, the effect will be even, even bigger. But uh, like I, don't, I think it's, it's fair to say there's no, no hiding for the, the European Central Bank, right? Yeah, well, uh, the, the European Central Bank and, and uh, many of the people here in the European Parliament uh, have been um, moving the goalposts on, mm. on the inflation. Um, first, they said, well, there is no inflation. You, should, you, shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't worry. Uh, then they started saying, well, there is inflation, but it's transitory. It's transitory inflation. Mm. Then they said, well, it's because of the, uh, the, 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 the COVID crisis and the supply chain disruptions. And then they said, well, uh, now they say, well, it, it's because of Putin. It's Putin's price hike. That's, that's, what, they, that's <laughs> what they say. But, um, and, and while they do have a point, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, the mm. war in Ukraine is uh, um, uh, fanning the flames of, of inflation. And obviously, uh, we have seen uh, supply chain disruptions due to uh, lockdowns uh, during the COVID pandemic uh, and less production, as a matter of fact. And um, more may be coming because of China's zero COVID uh, to exactly. totalitarian approach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this is one of the biggest producers uh, yeah. of, of, of consumer goods in the world. So, so indeed, they, they have a point. Uh, mm. But they forget to mention that the seeds were planted long ago for, for this inflation to spiral out of control now. And that has been uh, this low interest rate and asset purchasing policy that the European Central Bank has been doing ever since, well, what was it, 2012, uh, when they started buying up these government bonds, uh, when they started... Um, uh, when I started to see that the, that the amount of debt of certain EU member states was unsustainable, they started buying up these government bonds. They started lowering interest rates in order to keep the economy going, because if you lower interest rates, then um, uh, your, your economy will perform uh, or will grow better. Uh, but in the end, they, now, they are now starting to see and, and feel the consequences and um, there is no hiding you cannot just say it's Putin's fault or you cannot mm -hmm. just say it's COVID's fault the, the the core principle and mission of the European Central Bank is to is, is to to make sure there's there's price stability and well the numbers just point out that they are not doing exactly a very good job so, uh, but they planted the seeds, and uh, in terms of inflation, it's it's harvest time. So, so that's where where we're at right now. Yeah, and and what, what do you think? Uh, like, should they do? I mean, um, do you think they should focus on increasing the interest rates, uh, or generally shrinking the money supply, which would mean ending all these uh, purchasing programs that are, of course, you know. Um, uh, that are that originate in in um, in in, um, in an expansion of the of the money supply that is then used to to buy all these uh, uh, assets and and that are distorting bond markets uh, yeah. not only yeah. uh, public bond markets but also they're buying bonds of companies which I think is it's yeah. crazy that this is even legal I mean if I have a company they can buy my bonds but of course they only buy bonds of Volkswagen and then they they. They try to balance that a bit by also buying bonds from uh, Italian uh, producers. Uh, yeah. I mean, what 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 is like um, 
if you say like they have to prioritize one action, where should they start? Well, I, th I, th I think you you were exactly right in the beginning when you said they are between a rock and a hard place because if you if you either stop buying these bonds it will have consequences. If you start hiking interest rates, it will have negative consequences. Um, so it's it's difficult to say where, because the, it has been spiraling out of control, um, that that each, each move you make will have consequences, negative consequences. So it's difficult to say what they should do first. Um, what we believe is that we are we should start thinking outside of the box and what we are now when we look at the ecb and its central bank policies and and and, and the tools they have or, or the lack of tools they still have to to tackle inflation um is is no longer working so what you have to do is you have to zoom out go outside the box and see okay what systems what system are we having right now in the eurozone we see now that because of the euro, because of the European Monetary Union, we're seeing vastly different economies together in one monetary union. And we believe it's time to really start discussing the future. And, and probably that's, the, that's the, the most difficult, but a very important first step is to discuss mm. the fundamentals of the eurozone. Where are we going with this with the euro? And um, something we would very much like to discuss is um, for example, if you hike interest rates, we know from the past that Italy and other countries in, in Southern Europe would get in trouble in order mm -hmm. to finance their debt. Then uh, President Emmanuel Macron and um, uh, even now the Dutch um, uh, uh, finance minister uh, Sigrid Kaag, they say, well, we should be more lenient on these countries and they should be allowed to uh, have a larger debt for a longer period of time. And, and Macron even says, well, we should issue common European debt. So that's one solution if you go outside the box. We say, well, maybe it's time for us to acknowledge that we tried this nice experiment, the Euro, uh, but it has, it has failed and we should yeah. look for solutions. And well, the thing I think is a, is a very um, uh, interesting discussion is the Euro holiday to have uh, countries being allowed to leave the Eurozone for a period of time to mm -hmm. devaluate their currency, to 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 have a monetary policy that's actually uh, that actually fits their their economy, and maybe if they adhere to uh, abide to the rules later, they can come back into the eurozone. But I, I think I think we think we should start having that discussion because if you start having discussions on whether they should hike interest rates or stop buying government bonds, etc. I mean, very important discussion, but you you will not tackle the the underlying problem of the eurozone and that's that's basically the one size fits no one structure exactly but of course if you if you do that um then uh, you know we would see a, a series of defaults i mean in effect there was this panel discussion uh between uh, lagarde uh, and then the head of the fed and the head of the imf i don't know if you saw it and the um the bulgarian um imf uh, chief uh Gorgieva, if I pronounce that well, mm -hmm. she actually said, look, it's, it's possible that we see a series of sovereign defaults. I, I think she was more pointing at, uh, you know, uh, non-Western non countries that may see food price uh, challenges and everything. Yeah. But, but uh, I mean, if you look at it, like um, if the ECB actually is, is serious about uh, stopping inflation, then, then uh, yeah, in, we have a whole number of candidates in the Eurozone 
that won't be able to service their debt. Perhaps not right away, but mm. but that that point would come soon enough. So so you would probably combine the euro holiday or um, or, or even the euro, um, let's say. Uh, decomposition mm -hmm. uh, with uh, um, yeah, a large-scale uh, debt uh, restructuring uh, um, conference, right? Well, that's probably an in inevitable uh, consequence. Um, as we've seen now that, that the amount of debt of these countries has continued to grow uh, ever since the euro crisis. This debt, the debt wasn't lowered. I mean, it, it has increased. Um, and the, 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 I think that every policymaker and each uh, researcher has, has acknowledged that the amount of debt we are moving towards, we're having right now and we're moving towards is unsustainable within the confinements of the current structures that we're having. Uh, and, and even um, I heard that some economists, um, I think it was Lex Hoogduin who said it um, recently, is that it's also inevitable for some countries indeed to to have their to have a restructuring of debt uh, and mm. also to have debt um, um, well to have it to have it well restructured in that in that sense. Um, but yeah, you have to you have to you have to start having the discussion. And uh, if you don't have the discussion, or if you're not, um, if you're, if you don't dare to speak about these 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 topics, then how can you work towards a solution? And that's also the problem I'm facing here in the European Parliament. Is that yes. is that if you want to have the discussion, it's already a taboo. It's already mm -hmm. a taboo to discuss a restructuring of the eurozone, a a uh, a possible possibility for countries to leave the eurozone. I mean, it's it's unthinkable to have this discussion. And if you even start the discussion, you are already behind the cordon sanitaire. Um, <laughs> so, so I think that's also a big problem. And yeah, maybe I want to go go a bit more into that. So, so um, what is your strategy when when you're uh, when you're able to ask questions to the to ECB officials coming to speak in the in the EP? Um, I mean. Yeah, do you feel there's some uh, some things you can move there, or or is it hard? Um, the, the the most frustrating thing here is the the uh, the fact that in the European Parliament there is no real debate. There you can okay. you can you can ask questions, mm -hmm. uh, or actually one question, and then for <laughs> example, Christine Lagarde is allowed to answer, but I'm not allowed to ask another question. Um, that's probably also due to time constraints, but mm. because we are here with 705 members of European Parliament. Um, but it's, it's, it's increasingly frustrating. Um, also because the topics of discussion are already predetermined. Um, and what I have experienced for the last year is when having these monetary dialogues with uh, Christine Lagarde, the, most of the time the answers are read from uh from a, either a teleprompter or a note mm. um and and you would like to ask beyond beyond you, you would like to start a debate or initiate a discussion yes. so what we try to do is that when we look at her interviews we look at her uh, policy documents and then we try to to on, ba on the basis of these, of her, of her earlier announcements or, or, um, or earlier ECB publications, we try to ask a very specific question, and she, 
and she has to give a specific answer. Yes, but yes. Um, yeah, uh, you probably know as well as how politics work. Um, if you ask for yeah. uh, yes or no, you get neither. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember that the ECB has suffered a lot of pressure um, because of the fact that uh, like housing price inflation is not not included, and now it, it will be supposedly. But yeah. I understand only in a in a in a, in a partial manner, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we asked uh, Christine Lagarde uh, to do this, and she uh, she also said she wanted to incre include it into the um, uh, inflation index, the European Inflation mm. Index. But uh, the housing price, obviously, it's quite difficult to have this this um, uh, to have this included in the inflation index. Also, because uh, well, if you buy a house, it increases in value. But how do you actually put this in in inflation? I mean, if you have housing prices. It, it, yeah, it, it's it's a difficult factor to put it in. Um, coming back to this this inflation index, what I what I find quite interesting is that, and coming back to the very first question you asked, is this inflation index where um, the ECB's uh, uh, economists say, well, we we shouldn't worry that much about inflation because if you look at the index, it's mostly food and energy prices, mm -hmm. and then if you put the food and energy prices out. Then there's just a core inflation, which that is not very high. But then, <laughs> then, then, then we say, well, probably energy and food prices will not go down uh, on the short term. So I th we say, well, you should be worried about this high inflation. Right? Well, that's what a former uh, chief economist of the ECB said: that uh, core inflation is only relevant for people that uh, do not uh, transport themselves, or exactly, <laughs> and and that don't eat. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like of course, this whole discussion about the housing dates back from the, the age where where we had inflation or, or massive increases in prices. Yeah. Um, but but mainly in the in the housing and the hard asset sector is stocks. Uh, and yeah. they said, oh, there's no inflation, but then you could see housing prices going yeah. through the roof. Yeah. Uh, and, and now now of course this has uh, yeah combined with all all the other factors has has um, I mean it's it's undeniable it's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, well, and especially for my country, the Netherlands, um, it's it's just these housing these these hike in housing prices. It's just the, the, it's just getting increasingly difficult. Mm. Not only because housing bubbles are are being formed, uh, people are taking on mortgages. Uh, they just look at their at their monthly payments, and that's very mm. low because of the low interest rate. But they don't look at the value of the property that they're buying. Um, and I still remember the financial crisis in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And I'm not saying this will happen one on one again, but you can see that housing prices can go down by twenty five percent easily. Yes. Uh, and then if you have to sell your house, then you have a big problem. Um, and and also in the Netherlands. Uh, housing is already quite scarce i mean there's not a lot of uh, space in the netherlands to to buy houses again um or, or, or to build houses so so it's, it's 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 so it's also putting younger people who want to start a family that are not able to buy a house outside mm -hmm. of the outside of, of 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 society so so it's it's yeah this housing housing problem is a big problem and a consequence of ecb policies yeah, it's a, it's a very good point that indeed, of course, people that are very wealthy don't have to care that much. They actually profit from this. Yep. But we should never forget the whole point of low interest rates and central banks serving uh, to monetary finance governments. And that's, you know, so governments can spend. And in Europe, that's mostly on all kinds of social programs meant to help uh, the weak. 
Yeah. So the weak are the victim, uh, and they are the victim um, ultimately as the result of government spending programs yeah. uh, meant uh, meant to help them. Uh, so well, and then of course we have this. Uh, the second reason is to keep to keep the the eurozone construct alive. Yeah. Eh? Uh, no. um, good. Well, maybe let's move to to the next uh, subject I wanted to discuss with you, Michiel, uh, which is uh, migration. You mentioned that it's according to the multilingual di- digital platform, yeah. the number one concern of citizens. And I think uh, friend and foe will admit it's uh, it's very high up. Um, and and you know, from my Brexit days, I would say um, that people are not so much angry about somebody moving from another country. Mm-hmm. They're angry when they see that it happens in an uncontrolled manner, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and and uh, what's your view on this? And what 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 can the EU uh, change about it? Oh. I always found the the entire migration issue fascinating on 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 EU policy level because the EU is having trouble with legitimizing itself to the people. So they're having they're having an image problem. People don't like the EU. It's too distant. What what's really the 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 added benefit for for the people? And then I always said, well, we have this common market, this common European market, mm-hmm. which is of tremendous uh, added value for the citizens, for our for our people, for our businesses. Yes. But if you have a common market, you should also protect the common market, and that's by protecting your borders. And that's what they refuse to do. And people really see cha- they, they 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 see their neighborhoods changing. They see the images of people flowing into uh, the European continent with with either boats or they try to. Uh, attack the borders. Um, the, the the very thing that that the EU could do to make itself popular is to tackle this problem. Mm. And um, we have constantly been saying that as an EU, if you if you create um, uh, or if you actually copy or try to copy the, the the policies successful policies by for example australia then the eu would be so much popular with the people but yes. um, they have they have they, they are so ideologically stern in their um, they're they're so stern in their ideology that they don't want to change the policies because of either uh, human rights or the fact that, yes. that, that 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 migration is something that they see as an added value but we are talking about illegal, irregular migration, and that's what yes. people want to tackle. Absolutely, yeah. I don't think uh, people have a problem if you have a controlled way of, of uh, inviting people. For example, we have a big problem with nurses. Eh? These are uh, relatively high-skilled yeah. individuals. You can't just train them like that. So, so I think there's perfect sense to to try to find uh, somewhere in the world uh, nurses and invite them to come and work in Europe. No. Uh, but but like the every uh, you know um, irregular migrant that has no skills that managed to enter in to the EU, I mean, I feel for these people, I would probably do the same, I don't blame them, but, mm. but if, you, if you assume that there's a limited number of people we can welcome, that yeah. means that every person who, who, uh, yeah, who breaks the rules is, is one person less with, uh, with specific skills yeah. that we no longer can welcome, in theory, right? Yeah, yeah. well, uh, the thing is that when, when talking about uh, inviting people to come to, uh, for example, the Netherlands or, or, uh, or Belgium or France, because there's a shortage 
uh, of certain uh, skilled workers. I mean, there's no mm. problem with that. You can always mm. um, look for talent around the world, invite them to come over. Uh, also, for example, in IT, there's a massive shortage mm. uh, in the IT sector. Well, I'm very much in favor of that. You give people a permit, but at one point they have to leave. Um, uh, I visited Korea, uh, South Korea many times. They have a, they have a very, very strict uh, but fair migration uh, policy. And that's that there, that's just the principle. Um, no illegal migration, but uh, massive amounts of people are invited to come and work in South Korea. But at one point, you have to go back. You have to leave. And I, I'm very much in favor of that. But what, what we are seeing now is that uh we don't we have a a passive we have a very passive migration uh, policy but we should have a more active proactive mm. uh migration policy um and i think i think definitely that there is something to it's something to work with and also if we if we talk about the european common market i mean in the netherlands there's a massive shortage of people who are willing to work in slaughterhouses or uh, uh, uh centers of, of distributing goods i mean that's yes that's, we we need people from from either eastern or middle middle or eastern europe as well and we but we already have free movement of people so there are also there's also um there are also lots of people who can work within the European common market in the Netherlands where there is a shortage. So there's not necessarily a need to bring people from the other side of the world to, to Europe. Um, so yeah, that I think that's, 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 that's really the main problem and that's the problem that the EU has to tackle. And, and uh, maybe one, one, more, um, one more point on this. Uh, what's your opinion on then the, the UK scheme where they have um, you know uh, agreed something with uh, with Rwanda? Mm -hmm. uh, so so basically, if you try to sneak in illegally into the UK, there is a chance. It's apparently not not certain that you will be transported to uh, uh, to Rwanda, where you will have to apply for okay. asylum. Yeah, well, I th we think that's an uh, that's an excellent uh, system that they are putting in place because the. Because we're now talking not only about labor migrants, but also um, uh, genuine refugees from mm. fleeing from war. Mm. And uh, all the treaties we have signed say, well, you have to um, give these people a safe haven. Um, yes. And that's exactly what the UK is now doing. But what we see with these genuine refugees are also uh, probably in the majority uh, economic illegal migrants so mm -hmm. um uh, people coming either from middle east or, or africa to seek a better future and that's just unsustainable so we believe it's very good because as soon as they get in on the european continent they 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 move towards the illegality they they they, they can move freely between eu member states so they they reach the continent but they never leave so what the uk is now saying well there's no one coming in we give people a safe haven. They can ask for asylum in that safe haven, in this case, Rwanda. And then the genuine refugees are allowed to come to the UK. But the economic migrants, well, they are not allowed in and they will be uh, brought back to, the, to their country of origin. I think it's a, it's a very uh, fair system and, and, and a sustainable system. Yeah, and imagine if the whole of the EU would negotiate, you know, you could, uh, I mean, you could do it as a, as a much larger scale. And, and frankly, I think if, if I were an, an economic migrant, and if I knew that I would, uh, 
you know, end up in um, in a in maybe in a place like Rwanda that is actually you know that is economically uh, booming, mm-hmm. um, assuming that that uh, you know it would be um, indeed um, an economy where where it's attractive to live, then then. Yeah, I personally, I wouldn't mind. You know, of course, maybe I still would prefer to 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 come to the West, mm-hmm. but but like like assuming that the West can only uh, welcome X number of people, you can discuss about that. Of course, is yep. fair, 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 fair debate about to be had. But I think few people are willing to welcome anyone. Yep. Um, so so at even if you're the, the most generous uh, uh, advocate of migration. Uh, you're going to have to say no to some people. And then the question is, okay, what do you do with these people? And then what's yeah. wrong to try to find some kind of a second best uh, solution? Now, in the past, I've written about refugee cities uh, with Hong Kong as the great example, British Hong Kong, mm-hmm. which actually served as a heaven for, uh, you know, 30 million yeah. Chinese people that, that run away from Mao when Mao was still celebrated in the West. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, so the UK did a fantastic job for humanity there by simply welcoming them in a, in a jurisdiction where it's safe and not everything was perfect. but um, and, and if Britain could do that uh, 70, 80 years ago, well, why would the combined uh, industrial countries, not only Western countries, also Korea, Japan, mm-hmm. not be able to organize uh, a number of these cities somewhere where it's safe, where it's, of course, negotiated, right? Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think that... That could be true. However, what we are seeing already is when when people uh, are in their boat and they, they get to shore in, for example, Italy or, or Greece. I mean, for these people, that's not their final destination. They want mm. to, they, they always say, or always, they, they, they mostly say, I want to go to Germany. I want to go to Netherlands because they know. They know it's 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 the best alternative they have. So mm. as soon as they reach the the, the the Greek Isles, they can move towards uh, northwestern Europe. Um, so when saying uh, that when you have an economic migrant and the prospect is Rwanda, I don't think it's a really attractive prospect for these for 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 people. But mm. what it so so the consequence of having these policies in place is that the initial thought of actually taking the risk and moving towards trying to move towards the european continent is is removed and in that sense people will stay in their country of origin uh, and then i'm talking about economic migrants not not genuine refugees and you take away the business model of the people smugglers who are putting mm-hmm. these people in their boats so it's a win-win yes. um and in that sense i believe that that this is this is really a policy that we should pursue and i think the uk has it has to, well we we're seeing a lots of um people who are uh, angry with with the U- with the uk government for making this decision but i think that's a, a very vocal minority i think the silent majority truly supports these kinds of uh, policies yes uh, i think I, I agree with that okay great uh, maybe one more point uh, when it comes to reform of the eu then of course i'm talking about um reform along the lines of uh, um, the the uh, perspective of Brussels report, uh, yeah. meaning uh, more decentralization, more opening up of, of markets, say opening up the services market, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the, for, like um, uh, more, more um, let's say, a more scientific approach to, to regulation, a light touch regulation, more mutual recognition. I mean, is that is that even on the card? Is that is that a pipe dream? 
or or, or do you think it's it's worth still uh, advocating for it? Uh, what do you mean exactly? Well, like, are we with especially with the von der Leyen Commission? Should we give up hope for reform of the European Union? Ah, okay, yeah. Well, um, it's always uh, difficult <laughs> when having these discussions on whether it's possible to reform the EU towards a more um, decentralized institution uh, where we maybe renationalize some of the components. Um, I'm a Democrat in, in, uh, and, and I still believe that through elections you can change, uh, you can change the EU. I, be mm -hmm. I believe that if, if the people of France would wanted to have uh, Le Pen as president, she would have become president and she would have been able to uh, initiate reforms on an EU stage. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, yes, I, I, I still believe that we can reform the EU towards the way we um, the way we see it or the way is my party see it but then you have to start we have to start being more strategic so you have to you have to appeal to a larger um, uh, audience of the electorate and when and that's especially the curse of of well I don't like to talk in left and right wing politics, but if we should do it like that, or if we do, then for lack of a better word, right wing politics, it's that things are being said that are unrealistic, that are um, out of line and scare away a large part of what I call the, the silent majority. So we need to be smart, we need to be strategic, and we need to uh, be able to, to create an alternative, a realistic, viable alternative to the current EU, what we don't like, but we have to create a vision for people that they say, well, that's exactly what we want. And then you can uh, win elections and then you can start changing the EU. Um, I, I don't agree with, with naysayers who say, well, it's, it's no longer possible to, to reform the EU and we should, we should therefore leave the EU. Well, for the Netherlands, yes. I mean, leaving the EU is, or at least leaving the single market or the common market, it's, it's, it's um, economic suicide. So um, leaving the EU should never be off the table because if we are... Um, if, if we do get into this this irreversible transfer union in the eurozone what we discussed earlier then, then well we should definitely start discussing these kinds of things but uh, in the meantime we truly believe that you should present a viable alternative to the eu bureaucracy um and then you should start um convincing the people and then we should and then start working together with other parties and governments in the EU to, to fully realize this potential. And that's exactly the problem we're seeing on, on the right, is that there's no organization, there's no vision, there's no structure. Um, and the left, well, they, they have it. They have it. And, and, and they are organized and they have their vision and they know where they want to go. Um, so yeah, I think, I, think that's, that's, I think that's where we should be heading for. All right, good. Well, um, that all makes sense, of course. So, so thank you, uh, thank you very much, uh, Michiel Hugovin, for for this uh, discussion. Yeah. And uh, I Pleasure. wish you, uh, I wish you the best of luck with your with your excellent work um, in the European Parliament. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Brussels Report podcast.